1: Well, as those who have been listening to Way Down in the Hole from the beginning, our day ones, or even if you were day two or five, I guess you know that we end every season by doing an award show where we hand out major awards for some of the scenes and characters that have entertained us all season. So, no season is officially complete until we do the awards. And so, that's what we're here to do. But first, now that you have rewatched it for the umpteenth, fifty-eleventh time, Van, mm-hmm. is season three still your favorite season?
2: It is. It is still my favorite season. I will say that there is more build-up to season three than I remember. Uh, there are more episodes that kind of get us. I think season three really, really in the last maybe four or five episodes, more so four, really puts its foot on the gas, in no, in a way, no other wire season really does. But having said that, I still think that season three for me is the most monumental season because it has the Barksdale-Stanfield war. It has the rise of Carcetti. It is both a season where so many loose ends are tied up, but it's also a transitional season. It transitions right. the wire into the post-Barksdale era show that it came to be, you know? Um, season two, we talked about, is the season that switched things over to the new sort of dynamic of the wire. But season three is really the one that kind of starts to kind of give you that multifaceted kind of look that the show takes on in, in, in four and five. And, uh, you know, when you look at so many major things that happened, the death of Stringer Bell, the reincarceration of Avon Barksdale, you know, uh, all of those things going on, in a way, it's maybe the most eventful Wire season, you know? A season five, we're going to have a very, very difficult time making everyone love. Okay, but it's obviously it's a very eventful season because it's the finale. But this one here, we start to learn more about the guts of politics. Obviously, we learn a little bit more about what it looks like on the streets when there is a turf war that's going on. We see uh, some interesting views of policing from Bunny Colvin, really. And that in and of itself, I want people to kind of take a step back and think about the time we're living in today. I know that we've talked about it before but some of what was coming out of Bunny Colvin's mouth. He's describing the flaws in the system that we are really just trying to, just beginning to reconcile right now. That alone, when you talk about what age is the best, that entire view of policing has aged, you know, in a pristine way. So when you look at all those things put together, plus... Just some really, really amazing memorable scenes. It's still my favorite season of the show, season three by far.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely I always understood why you said that, because uh it it is such a strong season. It does feel like in hindsight, I can see where they were, you know, how they were thinking in terms of like ending the series altogether, because, you know, when this ended and as they were doing this, they had no promises of a season four. Which to me only makes season four that much more impressive because they wind up neutering some major components of this series. I mean, the Barksdale... This is effectively... Season three is effectively the end of the Barksdale reign. Yeah. Like, it's done. Some like, Charles it,
2: will say in the future, there's nary a Barksdale around.
1: Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Rome has crumbled. Yeah. So we're seeing the end of an era there. And because up until this point, Stringer and Avon were there with us from the beginning. I mean, we're not completely done with Ava, but for most intensive purposes we are. Yeah, we basically are. Um, yeah, we basically are done with him. And so it's very interesting looking at it from the perspective, as I said, the last few episodes that we did, like looking at it as if this was a series finale, which to me brought more, you know, it, it just brought season three up to a higher level, knowing what they're trying to accomplish. Because a lot of times when you're ending a series, you feel... I think a lot of writers feel so much pressure to wrap up every, every single, single thing. thing. Yeah. Yeah, every single thing. But they didn't do that because if, if season three would have ended, if this would have been it for The Wire, then we would have never seen what happened with Carcetti, the outcome of that. Yeah. Right. We would just, right. We just are like, oh, okay, he's jumping in the mayoral race. Like that's where that ends. The only thing that felt like a real end was the Barksdales and probably McNulty. Right. And, that was kind of it. Other than that, they just really leaned in into a uh, a theme of the wire, which is that everything is cyclical, things come back around. Mm-hmm. This is a never ending cycle of you know urban blight. You know, I guess even with bubbles, I think about how much we miss we would have missed with bubbles. Like where his story goes, yeah, of you course, know? of course that yeah the,
2: the bubble story is. <laughs> the redemption of the show in a way it, it's yeah. the only thing in the show that makes you think well damn man like oh, I, you know th- there's something to look forward to there's light at the end of the tunnel bubbles represents that in, in the wire in a major major way
1: yeah so so season three like had this been the end um I, I guess we have the both the the benefit and the inverse of that of knowing what happens later but i was like man we would have missed out on so much, as much as I, I have heavy disdain for season five. I don't think, I mean, we would have all been done a disservice had we missed out on, on season four. But nevertheless, season three is just kind of about not just endings, but sort of new beginnings and to some degree, never ending cycles that honestly, in cities like Baltimore, um, that can never really be truly truly addressed, But we, I'm glad you brought up the part about the police, especially because it relates so much to to today. I don't think, that because we weren't at this point, I think the previous times I've watched The Wire, while I would have never put this in the category of copaganda, I think the police messages or the uh, things around modern-day policing, they just hit so much harder mm-hmm. now because yeah. of the time that we're in. Sure, I mean, it wasn't that, but in a way, Amsterdam The radicalness of it, the revolutionary concept behind it is very similar to defunding the police, which is, um, you know, obviously it's not done the same way. I mean, you're talking about diverting funds, but that's really kind of what Bunny Colvin was doing is that he was diverting resources away from just, you know, street corner activity. Like he realized they were in a a cycle that they were they were never going to get anywhere with the drug war doing that. So he chose to basically ignore drug trafficking shifted his resources over to actually solving murders, you know. Public safety. Really, yeah, exactly, public safety. Yeah. He shifted the resources, right. which is pretty much what defunding the police yeah. is. He 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 decided that there was a
2: losing battle somewhere, something that he couldn't do, so he took the resources, like you said, and used them to keep his community safe. Now, he didn't do it by diverting funds. He did it by diverting attention and diverting yep. law enforcement, but he's still
1: diverted. Yeah,
2: for, uh, sure, for sure. Yeah,
1: conceptually, it's, you know, it's kind of the root of what the, the whole concept is behind, mm-hmm. is shifting the resources to things th- that the police can actually change and do, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, you talk about a drug epidemic. I mean, th- that is, so much of that is mental health services, which the police are not really equipped to do. Right. And so he knew that. So he's mm-hmm. like, tell you what, You know, we're just gonna kind of shift our attention elsewhere. So there, there was a a lot of themes in this that were just so relevant and resonated so hard uh, with today. And I know we probably have said this the last two award shows, but this one, I I felt like the field was a little narrower, but it was harder to make the selections than it than it has. Uh, Almost impossible.
2: I'm not even gonna lie. Like almost impossible for me to narrow it down. But I'm gonna give it the old Louisiana State University college <laughs> try, undefeated <laughs> national champions, everybody opting out for
1: the new season. You just had to, to get that in. Just <laughs> had to get that in. All right. Well, let's uh let's kick this off then. Uh let's start with best performance of season three.
2: Mm. Uh Bunny Colvin.
1: Bunny Colvin. That's who I have too. Yeah, I got bunny. <laughs> I but it it was unavoidable. Like yeah. it's I was just like, okay, you could make a case for a lot of people. Yeah. Because you know who else has a really strong case? Is Idris Elba, Stringer Bell. Yeah. Like this was Stringer Bell's most tumultuous season. And I had him as sort of a 1A choice, but I was like, man, I just cannot give this to anybody other than Bunny Colvin because he his imprint. Is on this entire season. The
2: character just went too many places. Yeah, it just—it's like, it, like Stringer was really acting his ass off this season because there were so many pressures on Stringer from, and when I say Stringer, I mean Idris Elba. So many pressures on him uh, from every different you know arena. Like he was trying to keep secrets, he was revealing secrets, he was trying to stay alive, he was going back and forth with in a new world that he didn't really have very much knowledge about. So Stringer was both in i am gonna go get it mode and in self-preservation survival mode the entire season. And it was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly well done by Idris Elba. But, you know, Robert Wisdom as Bunny Colvin, everything that the character went through, Bunny Colvin had to—he had more come-to-Jesus moments— like really in one season than most than, than most characters have in the entire sort of arc of a series. Uh, when you look at the speech, the paperback speech, you know, when you look at him finally facing music with Rawls, you look at him facing the music everywhere you're going, he's struggling back and forth with his need and want to have his career as a policeman matter. And The fact that the only way that he can make it matter is to do something that his bosses and the rest of the department are going to see as abhorrent and terrible and almost treacherous. So that push-pull with him inside of himself and in the system that he exists in, I think it was done brilliantly. So I'd give it to Robert Wisdom. He is, to me, the best performance of this season.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to argue against. I thought his only competition was Stringer, because um, it was it, it was Stringer. I think actually showing a little bit more range too. Uh, I think up until now we had just mostly seen him as the detail oriented, paranoid, you know, kind of drug kingpin. But the best thing I think in terms of being able to show a little more dimension with Stringer was the rift with Avon, their breakup and they had some really strong scenes together, especially over, like, the last three episodes. Like, that, to me, showed a little bit more from Stringer. Like, generally, The the Wire has very few one-note people. And I think for a time, Stringer was, like, kind of one-note. He was a great one-note. So I'm not really surprised, man, that both of us um have Bunny Colvin, uh, despite a serious challenge from one Russell Stringer Bell, a.k.a. Idris Elba. All right, now on to who was the best boss this season? Hmm. Gotta do it again. I know. So far. (laughs) Yeah, look, so I think, I think the last two seasons in the award show, I think it was Daniels. I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, it was Daniels. Right. So Mm -hmm. now he's on a a Daniels, like, uh, you know, run, I guess. Um, But uh, Daniels fell off though, this season. Like he, his his back and forth with McNulty, I mean, I'm not saying that that was Dan- Daniel's fault necessarily, but he lost his grip a little bit. Then, you know, overall, he had to be convinced. Clearly, I mean, McNulty had to go over his head into going after Stringer Bell, into understanding what the focus of the case should be because he was starting to slide back to some of his old company man habits. So, you know, I had to kind of take that into consideration. So he wasn't as good of a boss to me in this season as he was in season two. So... Um. Yeah, I think hands down it, it's is easily Bunny,
2: Bunny Colvin for me.
1: Yeah, and and a testament so- to what a good boss he is is, look, I know uh Herc ultimately snitched on him, but mm-hmm. if you think about, I guess you know how long we think Hamsterdam may have lasted, the fact that none of his guys were willing to turn him in, willing to rat him out sooner. I mean, I think it's it, the loyalty they had for him spoke mm-hmm. to the fact that. They all, you know, understood that while they may not agree with the method, they understood the concept.
2: So a couple of scenes did this for me. When the two, when Bunny is talking to the two guys and they're going to be cops, right? There's something that's very important about that because we talk about the difference between a boss and a leader, right? A boss is a guy that says, hey, you get over here. I want you to do this. I want you to do that. I want you to do that. A leader is a guy that makes you feel like a guy or a lady, a woman or a man. Um, that makes you feel like they are in it with you. Hey, leader is, we're all here in this forward area. I got a bayonet. You all got bayonets. Follow me, not from a horse in the back of it. You know, that's a boss. Buddy Colburn feels like a leader, even more than a boss. He feels like a leader because he gets those two guys, right? And he's talking to them about where they are. And He's telling them about things that he feels like are going to keep, keep them alive. And he also makes a connection with one of those guys. Are you any kin to this dude? Yeah, I am. Your uncle, good police. Bunny Colvin wants to take a personal responsibility for the character and the professionalism of every single police officer in his charge. We also see that again when he sees McNulty. When he sees McNulty, he doesn't say, hey, it's McNulty. He says, bushy top. There's a relationship there between him and McNulty. And the same way he has that relationship between all of these guys uh, is the same one that he wants to have with the community, right? He wants everyone to get more personal because he wants people to have stakes in it. He wants them to have stakes, some skin in this game. When he's talking to Carver, Carver, a cop who, you know, looks up to Bunny, obviously he challenges him. Challenges him to be more than what he is. Not trying to play him not trying to make sure he has his loyalty so he can manipulate him, not trying to get him to do whatever he needs to do. He challenges him to be the police officer that he is, and he's a risk taker. Anybody that the mark to me of a bad boss or when a boss has become ineffective or when the leader has become ineffective is when they care so much about their position that they're afraid and unwilling to take risks. Now, obviously, Colvin didn't think he was taking that much of a risk because he thought he was going to be able to retire as a major um, and, you know, get the full pension and get paid out and stuff like that. But still, though, he had to know it was an incredible risk to do what he did, yet he still did it because he believed. You know what I mean? Captain America, great leader, always right there with you, always willing to take a risk, Steve Rogers, okay? But yeah, but Bunny Colvin, I think, was not just one of the best boss, best bosses of this season. I think you can make an argument that Bunny Colvin, season three, is the best boss in the wire ever. I said that. I might have said that about Daniels, but I don't know if you can make it. You can make an argument that Bunny Colvin, best boss ever,
1: man. You do make a great distinction between being a boss and being a leader. And he was not only just a leader, but it's like he was almost the leader of a of a movement that he was trying to create, which is a yeah, yeah, which is a lot different than I think. I think Daniels it was important to him to be a a good boss, but you know that his his ability to lead only went so far because at some point Daniels was going to do he was going to he was going to toe the company line. Like he was. Right. He he kind of had to because he envisioned himself having a long career in law enforcement. Once Bunny knew that he was he was out, that he was retiring, that just empowered him to lead the way that he did. And it wasn't just about, I agree with you, it wasn't just about him coming up with Hamsterdam, which was, you know, a, a very much kind of a Hail Mary effort on, on his part to, to leave policing with some feeling as if he made some kind of impact, feeling as if he has some kind of legacy that wasn't just him spinning his wheels uh, or spinning his heels on the hamster wheel the whole time. Can
2: I give an honorable mention? Mm. Yep. For best performance of the season, too? Sure. Uh, Chad L. Coleman as Cuddy.
1: See, I have Cuddy as a winner of another award that we'll get to.
2: Okay. Uh, yes, okay. I, yes. I think about but, that. I but, just, it just jumped in my head.
1: But that is valid. That's because th- this is. And then you think about the the genius of his storyline, which you eloquently laid out when you talked about your family members, that he's talking about um, here. You have a, a plot line at a time where people weren't really talking about criminal justice reform or talking mm-hmm. about what happened to incarcerated people. And here you have an entire storyline built around that narrative. And he gave a humanity to it that we hadn't really seen in television before. So. Right. So, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, uh, a Cuddy, a.k.a. Dennis Wise. <laughs> yeah. Chad Coleman uh, definitely deserves an uh, honorable mention for best performance. All right, so we both agree that Buddy Colvin, who so far has won every award we've talked about, <laughs> Bunny. is it's the big best Big season boss. for Bunny. Yeah, yeah. best boss, uh, best performance. Who was the worst boss?
2: Oh Jesus Christ, uh, Rawls, man! <laughs> like we're all, like, like Rawls. Rawls is
1: always a contender. This award should essentially be named after him.
2: But this was a, this one's even more. You know what? Let's 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 change that. Let's do it the Deputy Rawls Award for worst boss. I'm serious
1: <laughs> because
2: I, I I tell you why. You can always give it to Rawls, but at least in season one, Rawls was dealing with somebody who was insubordinate, right?
1: And remember, we saw some humanity from Rawls in season one. We saw one some humanity in Kima, Rawls. Wakima got shot. Wakima yep. got shot. Yep.
2: All Rawls is doing in Comstat meetings now is ripping the hell out of people, making them incapable of doing their jobs. He makes a man throw up, just like he is not offering it. This is the worst boss. The worst boss is the boss that just comes in, doesn't get his, his, his hands dirty with you, her hands dirty with you, and continuously shits on you until you break. That is the worst boss. And Rawls embodies that. All he's doing, he's doing it so much that Burrell, who's a fink, you know what I mean? A weakling, just sits there and lets him do it. Rawls just comp- just wants to break guys and beat on him and beat on him and beat on him and, and beat on them. None of it seems constructive. Rawls doesn't have any answers. He, has, he didn't, and that entire time, he did not once give any sort of law enforcement strategy to any of those guys that might have made a difference in their numbers or the safeties of the communities, the safety of the communities uh, that they patrol. So he was by far, far and away the worst boss. Terrible boss. Terrible boss.
1: So I thought outside the box on this one a little bit. And there were two candidates it came down to. One of which I think you'll understand, the other one may cause you to raise your eyebrow. One of them was Mayor Clarence Royce. Terrible. Royce. Mayor Royce was terrible, right? It's like, and we haven't even seen the worst from Mayor Royce. Yet. Not yet. We haven't yeah. even seen it. But, you know, he is not just, like, ineffective, but you know, him trying to figure out a way to massage Amsterdam. He's, yeah, he's almost
2: not even a boss. He's just, like, some. he's just a, a fucking swindler. Yes. Like he is like, he's like, no, he's doing nothing. Royce is doing nothing, by the way.
1: Yes, he he does nothing. He's not really about anything. Because at least with Carcetti, mm-hmm. you see glimpses of him really caring about what happens to the people in Baltimore. I don't really get that impression from Royce at all. Like, I never no. did, like, once. I was like, I don't think no. he really cares about the residents. It's like, he just kind of cares about staying in power, being a career politician. And his job, he basically boiled it down to who can he assign to take the blame for his latest fuck-up? To take, a blame right. for, for, take the blame for his ineffectiveness. So, terrible boss. But ultimately, to me, the winner
2: of this category
1: say. is Omar. Omar was a bad boss this season. Omar. I thought you were going to say Avon. No, it came, I was going to say Omar.
2: It came down to me between Rawls and Avon. Omar, yes. outside of the box. You're not outside of the box. Nigga, you outside of the,
1: the Legos. You outside of the box <laughs> of the box. You wait until... I'm I'm outside the I'm factory fascinated. of boxes. Also, yeah. So here it is. Uh, Omar, his guilt and his uh, almost doubting himself was, like, very palatable this season. Yeah. And the way Bunk checked him, I thought, one, he deserved to be checked in that matter. He went on, you know, he went on a foolish... It wasn't necessarily foolish. You understood where the vengeance was coming from. But he got... Too much, uh, he got he suffered from tunnel vision. He made it all about the Barksdales and he put his people at risk. Tasha gets killed on his watch. Dante gets kidnapped as well. Because again, this is all shit that he basically started when he decided that come hell or high water, he is going to avenge or enact revenge on the Barksdales. He got locked in to the point where he put his people at risk, which is which goes against every part of the code that kind of Omar had really established for himself. And we saw him kind of violate that code this season in ways that, like, it's not really him. And that's why he spent most of the last part of this uh, particular season trying to atone for that. I mean, he gets Officer Dozier's weapon for bunk, trying to make amends because about everything he said about... Tasha, Dozeman, yeah, 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 Dozerman, yeah. right. Everything he said yeah. about Tasha and his responsibility, and that was true. That's why I didn't sit right with him because he had violated his code. And so for that, I think that Omar was actually the worst boss. He had a crew. The crew was, you know, fractured and disjointed. A lot of strife because once Tasha got killed, that crew was never right. You know, he couldn't he couldn't make that right. And the only reason they were there is because Omar made the decision that this was no longer going to be about them getting money. This was going to be personal.
2: Hmm, and, interesting. Yeah. I, I, compelling. Compelling. How dare you? Um,
1: <laughs> hey, I uh, love him, man. I mean, that's my guy. But like, it's like, all right, you know, w- the best thing he could have d- decided to do was to go solo. And then, you know, of course, the season end with him uh, throwing his tools into mm-hmm. the the river.
2: Yes, we're, we're never going to see Omar again, right? He's done now. But, <laughs> Uh yeah. oh, but yeah, no, I, I get it. I get it. I, I I get the argument. It's one of those things where I understand the argument and it's compelling and
1: bold
2: in its freshness. He definitely made mistakes this season for sure.
1: Yeah, that that's uh, usually not something that we that we see from him. But I, I hear you. Look, Rawls, I was tempted to once again say, like, this dude is like the worst. It's too easy. He made it easy for me. Yeah, but he, it's like, but Rawls is basically when it comes to worst bosses. This is like Jordan in the Midnight. you could to give Jordan the MVP every year, right? I love
2: that. I love one year that they gave Carl Malone the MVP and they were like, wow, it's because he averages 0. 0.4 more assists than Michael Jordan does. Like, he's... They, they had to look and for then, reasons. I think
1: Utah finished with the best record, too, that year, right? They, they, like... they
2: probably did. But, like, did anyone think that year that the Jazz were a better team than the Bulls were?
1: Probably not. I mean, you know, people <laughs> tried to make some... They, well there were arguments to be made given what the regular season success was for Utah and the fact that they had been there. Like, it felt like, okay, maybe this team might eventually get over the hump. Maybe. In six.
2: <laughs> In six.
1: That's all I'm saying. In six. Uh, you In know, six. When, when And can... Jordan,
2: jordan got a better history than Karl Malone. Oh, I'll leave it
1: no question. I mean, Karl Malone's a trash <laughs> person. Like, that's like, that's not even debatable. Like, I'll trash. Leave it
2: there.
0: Yes,
1: yeah. leave it there. Google it. That's all I gotta say. And one of the stories right. I wrote. So, like, Google I remember it. that one. Yep. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, right. Although I would say, but it's funny to me uh, using that analogy. Jordan never was mad about Barkley winning the MVP. He was only mad that they gave it to Carl Malone. Uh, the Barkley one was deserved. Like,
2: I, I'm not even saying that the Malone one wasn't deserved. I'm just saying that I remember watching very, I mean, vi- very vivid memories of them of a whole thing where they're putting up graphics of their numbers and stuff like that. And it's like, really, you got to point to the assists. Uh, like, like, Malone is getting it done assist-wise. So a little bit more to Jordan. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? If you want to give them the award, give them the award. But the Barkley thing, Barkley took the Suns and made them into a legitimate finals contender. It was like, plus Barkley and the, some other pieces. And they were right there, six games in the finals. But
0: this episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Slash Simmons.
2: Six. That's all I gotta say. All of you guys, six.
1: All right, now let's talk about some of our favorite scenes from season three. Do you have? I mean, it's this is always an unfair question about favorite scene for an entire season, because it's like literally a thousand of them that you can name, which is why I termed it more so like some of your favorite scenes from the season. But if you have one that you feel like is number one, go ahead and share okay. that.
2: Oh, These are my, some of my favorite scenes. Uh, the Bunny Colvin paperback speech. Now, this is before my time when it happened, but
3: somewhere back in 50s or 60s, There was a small moment of goddamn genius by some nameless smokehound who comes out to cut rate one day. And on his way to the corner, he slips that just-bought pint of elderberry into a paper bag. A great moment of civic compromise. That small, wrinkled-ass paper bag allowed the corner boys to have their drink in peace and he gave us permission to go and do police work. The kind of police work that's worth actually taking a bullet for. Dozerman, you got shot last night trying to buy three vials. Three. There's never been a paper bag for drugs.
2: until now. Just unbelievable right there. I told you about another one of my favorite scenes, and it's a scene that a lot of people wouldn't have maybe on their list uh, when Cuddy goes to ask, when, excuse me, when Dennis Wise goes to ask Avon for the money. Boxing gym, huh? Ain't a proper one yet.
3: That's why I asked to see you. So what you know about taking care of something like that? Not a damn thing, but I know that's sweet science. And I got some kids who are interested. But what I got a need for, bro, is equipment. Man, these kids gonna get rained on. They need headgear, they need guards, cups. Mm-hmm. And I know I can go around and collect a dollar here and dollar there, but I'm trying to put together a select group of people, right? I call them my, my gold circle club. And they gonna make a substantial contribution and just get this thing rolling right. How much money are you talking about? 10,000.
2: <laughs> he can go through all that for 10,000. Man, Slim, go get him 15,000 cash, man. I think that scene is brilliant for so many reasons. Number one, I, I said this before, it shows you that, you know, we're going to see other guys control West Baltimore, one specific other guy, right? Control West Baltimore, Marlowe. But man, there was a humanity to Avon, and he wasn't always able to access it, and he didn't always try. But there's something that Avon says when he gives the money to Cuddy. Uh, he gives him the money, and he says... All right, man, man. Hey, you take care of them little niggas, man. Man, no doubt, bro. Like, look after the children. Here is money for you to go look after the children. When Slim Charles comes to him and tells him about the list of guys that have gotten out of the game, when he names the one guy that cleaned his whole act up, Avon goes, hmm, almost as if he was with it. You know, when Cuddy stepped out of the game, Avon says, it like, you know, cool, you're gone. Like, you know, he's like he was a man in his day. Avon goes, he's a man today. There's something about Avon. There's an awareness about Avon. Avon understands who he is, but he also understands that not everybody has to be him. With Marlo, if you weren't a shark, you were food. You don't matter. Avon was not really like that. He still did bust innocence for business. And somebody actually pointed out when I was talking about the whole D'Angelo, uh, Wa- Wallace thing, it was Avon. Avon was right there when D'Angelo came to him. He asked him to leave Wallace alone. So Avon definitely, it wasn't just Stringer who, who got Wallace out of there. That was that came from the top two guys. So I'm not saying Avon wouldn't do lowdown, abhorrent shit. But I'm saying there was another side to him. And that scene was a good, he, he laughed. All you need is 10000 I got you 15, dog. Go take care of the kids. You know? That scene meant a lot to me. I don't know why. Every time I see it, it's one of my favorite scenes. Uh, I would say it was the best scene, though. So you
1: have that one. Well, let me ask you Um, something real quick before you you share the best scene. Do you think the scene where he asked for the money is better than the scene when he asked to get out of the game? Because I think when he asked to get out of the game, that's when you... Because here's the thing about Avon, though, that I will say has been... A hallmark of his, as you said, like, where did, I don't think either one of us are saying that he was, he was some kind of saint. But I think there's certain codes he respected. See, he respected the fact that Cuddy told him, like, Slim Charles tried to take the heat for it and say, oh, man, I missed him. That was on me. And Cuddy was like, no, no. It's on
3: me. I had that kid in my sights, close enough to take off his cane go and half his dome with it. Couldn't squeeze the trigger.
1: And I think Avon respected the fact that he didn't let another man take his mistake and that he told and said it was me and admitted why and said, I don't have a heart for this anymore. Like, mm. I think he's okay with that, right? right? But what he's not okay with is people trying to be something that they're not. And like you said, you know, he's all right if, you, if you're if you not him. Um, right. As long as you don't get in his way, he's fine with it. And so he knew that Cuddy, Cuddy had put in enough time had built enough equity with him where he felt like you know what he deserves to go and live his own life and just do what he has to do. So I, I there are there are times where I feel like you know like just like the code of family like Avon mm-hmm. really believes in that right, and right. so I think that he has certain kind of untouchable principles despite the fact that he's a part of this dark world. But yeah, thinking about those two scenes, I would contend that when Cuddy asked him to get out of the game, that was a more powerful scene than the one you mentioned, even though I also agree with you about the power of that.
2: As far as the power of the scene, I would definitely say Cuddy making that bold sense is probably more powerful. But the reason why the, the other one I still like more and the reason why it resonates more is because you have Cuddy walking into the situation now not being a part of the organization. Why should Avon even grant him an audience? Why should they even talk? Why should Avon, and when Avon knows there's going to be no return on his, his investment, right, he's not going to make any money off this. This is straight-up philanthropy. This is pure help. This isn't, I'm going to give you a pack when you get out of jail, you're going to get your money up, and then you're going to come and, and, and help me kill people or intimidate people or do whatever, do some soldiering for me. This is straight-up, I need your help. Give me your help. And he does it. So for some reason, that tapped the humanity of Avon Barksdale in a little bit of a different way to me. Your point is well taken, though. It's definitely well taken. Um, you can't go wrong with either scene. So you have uh, you have that one, which to me is the most Van Lathan emotional scene for me. I, well, not the most emotional scene, but I like that scene so much. Also the scene where Cuddy goes and talks to his old flame and she says, don't look. All right. I love that scene. But overall... The thing that grounds the Barksdales in this entire deal, and there are more great scenes, guys, there's a, a million, right? You pick your poison. I mean, Nolte at dinner, where he learns that, he, that that he's trying to be played, he comes back, just so many great scenes. But I still think, not the balcony scene, but the scene when Avon reveals to Stringer that it was him that had D'Angelo killed.
3: You know, Brianna went downtown, man, saw that detective. Man stoking a head saying that uh, D'Angelo's death is no suicide. Yeah, so? Man ain't wrong about that. What? Man. Knew you couldn't do it. Brianna wouldn't do that shit. But there you go, a life that had to be snatched, Davon. Man, I took that shit off you. Put it on me, man, because that motherfucker was out of pocket with that shit. 20 years above his fucking head. He flipped, man. They got you, me, and fucking Brianna. No fucking way, man. Hell no. Now, I know you, you, that family. You love that nigga, but you want to talk that blood is thicker than water bullshit.
2: Take that shit somewhere else, nigga. That motherfucker would have taken down the whole fucking show, starting with you, killer. It's fucking everything. And everybody. That is the best scene of the season to me because that, that scene represents a huge secret coming out. Stringer finally trying to prove himself to Avon. Avon finally getting off of his chest what he really thinks about Stringer. It's a scene where there's a back and forth. Avon Avon is physically weakened, but mentally and emotionally empowered because he's telling Stringer the truth that he he believes about. Stringer is physically stronger, but he is mentally still trying to prove himself to Avon. Then that turns into an actual physical battle where Stringer once again is physically stronger, but then Avon says, get off me, and he has to obey. So there's just so many things going on in that scene to me that make it, to me, uh, the best scene. It's the most tense scene. I was like, ooh, what's going to happen when I first saw Even now, I've seen it so many times. I still go, yo, is Shreem going to kill him? And I don't know, man, you've seen it before. It's not going to change. So, uh, but yeah, so that to me is was, was the best scene of the season.
1: That is the only scene I think we've ever seen Avon that weak. I mean, physically weak in terms of like, yeah. You know, here he is, you know, Stringer could have really hurt him in that moment. And I don't think we we are ever used to seeing Avon that way. We've seen him get shot at, you know, when when Omar shot at him and, and other, you know, little things. But, like, we've never seen him in that position. And and just um, that scene, I would I would tend to agree with you, was probably the best one, just because of um, the tension that was in their relationship. And uh, you are, you have to love a scene where you have two characters who really um who really get at one another and say some of the things it's like you know they always tell you in relationships um you have to you, you have to fight fair right you have to argue mm-hmm. fair because if you don't argue fair then you're pretty much drawing your line in the sand and saying like i don't really give a fuck if this relationship lasts or not they are having a truly unfair argument where he's like, I murdered your cousin. Oh, yeah, really? Well, that's why you mm-hmm. stupid. Like, it was just like, yeah. damn, <laughs> man, without a country, you really green. Yeah. It was like, oh, OK. They just like, <laughs> nobody is safe in that moment. <laughs> so, so it was, it was great. So and, and then to go from that emotional, you know, sort of that back and forth of anger to then the balcony scene. of like, oh, man, remember that time you stole that badminton Said Those was good mm-hmm. times. Too bad I'm yeah. gonna have to kill your ass, but that Too was. Too bad time. you gotta die. <laughs> you gotta and die. And I gotta send you to jail. Yeah, I had to send you to jail, but damn. Remember when we used to dream?
2: Much, <laughs> you know how much stuff I learned about my parents via argument?
1: Oh, it is the worst when you over. You know a real stuff, argument between
2: your like father. You you hear you hear your parents really going and you hear your mama say something like, just to let you know, son, uh your dad is all in here talking about my friends, but his mama. Was a big titted hoe. And ask around. <laughs> ask around. Everybody in Bat Rouge saw them titties. And you're thinking, well, and, and you sitting down and you're thinking to yourself, interesting. <laughs> now, when she says his mother, <laughs> there's no way she's talking about my mama. <laughs> right. She ain't talking about my grandma. It, <laughs> it gotta be somebody who I don't know. Cause there's no way that my mom just called my grandmother, a big-tittied hoe. And and then after after a while, you start hearing her bringing up all of this stuff, and then they start going back and forth. And you're like 11 going, God damn! And that's really the way the real knowledge, at least down in the South, that's how the real knowledge about your parents gets downloaded. You get it from that shit.
1: Yeah, because you, you sit around and listen to the grown folks talking your family, especially some liquor come out, and then you find out somebody auntie is really their sister. You're like, what? Auntie's sister? Hey, <laughs> hey, That bang. ain't your cousin. That's actually your daughter. Like, what? That's actually the,
2: <laughs> Hey, man, don't listen to your auntie. She don't know nothing. She can't talk because she fucking everybody. She got no time <laughs> to think because she fucking too many men in Baton Rouge. Don't listen to what <laughs> she's saying. I hear her in there talking shit. Tell her to go fuck someone. That's what she's good at. I'm like, God, and then the door slams. I'm like, yo, y'all realize I'm just trying to watch WrestleMania? Like, <laughs> like, I really I'm not, a child, I
1: don't need to know. I'm
2: a, I'm a child, I'm in the sixth grade. I don't know if y'all know, but yeah. I don't need to know this about my grandma. <laughs> right, that's what happened with Stringer and Avon though. They got to that point where it was like, yo, nigga, just so no, you a hoe. Yeah. Like, I, like,
1: I've never told you before, but you're actually a bitch. <laughs> Like, you, know, you know, so, and, that, and, that, and that's what, that's what they did. <laughs> Your mom ain't tell you she slept with my best friend and you might not be mine. <laughs> like, yeah, wait, what?
2: <laughs> I, by the way, I've heard that. I've heard that exact conversation. Not in my house, but in one of my cousin's house. You are know, like, like, you want me, what do you call them? It was funny because the OJ trial had just happened. My cousin's house. This, by the way, is a Van Lathan sidebar. A Van Lathan sidebar. His dad, who wasn't around a lot, his dad comes in, he was like, or like, his dad was drunk. His dad said... He looked, looked at his mom, they were not together. They were not together. And he said, woman, bring me a Budweiser, the king of beers, for I am the king of this castle. And I burst into laughter. I burst into laughter, I'm like 15, 16 at this time. I burst into laughter. He has a couple beers and he looks at his, his son and he goes, hey, when you get old, we gonna get one of them P and A tests, like OJ, like they did on OJ. You know, the P and A things, they prove OJ did it. We gonna get one of those, because I'm telling you something. You look a little bit like my brother. I think you look more than like him than you do me. Your mama used to be all up in there with my brother. They was listening to Confunction. They was doing all kinds of like I'm, I'm saying. You, you, you might not. Your uncle might be for your uncle. I don't know, boy. I don't know. Look, you knock need. I ain't knock need. Your uncle knock need. The whole nine. And we sitting there. We looking at each other like, yo, what's with this nigga? <laughs> like, what, like, what, like, what, like, what's, like, what, like, what's going on? This is not the way that you do this, but. I'm telling you. That's what happened with Stringer Avon. Sidebar open. Wait, saying hell, I've been
1: man, I need to know. I mean, was that his dad? or
2: We never found out. <laughs> like, who finds out? <laughs> like, you know, like, we don't know. It, it could be. Like, like I, would, I would ask my mom about stuff, and my mom was like, yeah, it's a chance. <laughs> it, I was like, are you serious? She's like, yeah, it's a chance. It's, I mean, it's a chance. She was very close to his brother. Like, very close. We all used to wonder about it. It's definitely a chance, but we
1: don't know. That may be the greatest van late sidebar. I mean, we don't and know. This At this point everybody got gout, you might as well let it live. Now everybody older. I was like, whatever, man. Shout right. out to both of them. It's too you late know? now. Um yeah. okay. Some of my favorite scenes from this season. I think what I might vote number 1 uh, as much as I did love that that back and forth between Avon and Stringer is when Buddy uh, broke down um the the pitfalls of modern day policing and what's mm. wrong with it. And when he
3: said- Soldiering and policing, they ain't the same thing. And before we went and took the wrong turn and, and started up with these war games, the cop walked to beat and he learned that post. And, and if there were things that happened up on that post, where they be a rape or robbery a shooting, he had people out there helping him, feeding him information. But every time I come to you, my DEU sergeant, for information, to find out what's going on out there in them streets. All that came back was some bullshit. You had your stats, you had your arrests, you had your seizures. But don't none of that amount to shit when you're talking about protecting the neighborhood now. Do it. I
1: mean, he pretty ah. much just broke down everything wrong with uh, policing both then and now. And uh, now. Hadn't changed. Yeah, none of it had really changed. And so he mm-hmm. just had a, a, when he told him about uh, the fact that he didn't have any connection to the community whatsoever. That's initially what he try- That's exactly what he's trying to tell him is like, you know, you don't even know the people who you're policing. You have no idea who they are. They don't talk to you. They don't like you. You're a shitty police officer and you are basically representative of everything that's wrong with this entire police force. I was like, wow. Um, but even though it may have seemed harsh, like it, to me, it's, it's ultimately that's the scene that changes Carver. That I mean, he was already heading, he was trending in that direction. But that scene right there, where he made him understand that he was thinking of himself as a soldier and not as an actual policeman, intrinsically changes the core of who Carver is. So, I thought that was great. Uh, Bernard and Squeak, they're a national treasure. <laughs> I got another, I got another award for them. You got another one? Okay, Bernard and uh-huh. Squeak. Some of my favorite scenes, OK, <laughs> throughout mm-hmm. this, all up to the end, when they finally get busted. And right. he's like, please take me to jail. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wanted Bernard and yep. Squeak to have a spinoff. Like, they, they needed their own spinoff, right? <laughs> yep. Because uh-huh. I feel like... Amazing. They, and they, they had such great chemistry. Oh, my mm-hmm. God, amazing. I mean, you know, even though uh, I'm sure I'm positive Bernard may have only spoken 12 words in their entire relationship, hmm They were still 12 very strong words, and you can see the very chemistry there. words. Yes, I, yeah. I have no doubt that they will be together. Let me show out of Westview was 845. We could make that if we don't make the whole damn run today. Seems to me one phone is as good as the next. Only a fool drive all over the world when they ain't no need. Keep on with that shit, and I'm going to leave your ass in Baltimore. I don't trust no man on the road by himself, okay? I'm not stupid. All right, now on to, I guess, some of our major awards. Uh, who do you have for coach of the year? Coach
2: of the year, uh, this particular season, is Marlo. Marlo <laughs> is the coach of the year. Okay, yes. I'm trying to
1: think of what, what coach would Marlo be like, right? Bobby mm-hmm. Knight? Shit, I don't know.
2: <laughs> uh, he is definitely very Bobby Knight. But if we're talking about coaching, we're talking about making the right adjustments, making the right moves. That's true. Making a, uh, like, you know what I mean? He did, he did have a flaw, other game
1: plan.
2: He did. He made the right adjustments. He made the right moves. He, know what, he knew when to strike. He knew when to lay back. He knew when to call a timeout. He called a timeout saying, hey, I'm going to fall back, take my name off the package for a little while. You know what I mean? He, de- he made all the right moves. He was, he was the coach. He out-coached the Barksdales this season. So I would definitely give it to, to, to Marlo.
1: You know, what's interesting about the dynamic of his organization compared to Avon is, like, Avon needed somebody else. He needed somebody like Stringer, who was more of a big-picture guy, somebody who could, um, you know, maybe get get him to see things from a different perspective. Marlo did not have that person and didn't need one either because he was mm-hmm. both. Like, he was right. a, a master strategist, as well as somebody who could be diabolical and didn't mind taking it down to the streets. So it's like, whereas Marlowe didn't have any sounding boards. It was like, this is all for... Uh, he had an audience of one, himself. Like, right. oh, okay, I need to kill this person. This is what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way he dropped the Old Girl, man, like, was it two to the yeah, chest? Yeah, no, he,
2: he, he had a consigliere. I think Parlow serves as a consigliere because he asked him, he was like, yo, what you think about that? Like, he'll, mm. he'll ask Chris. He does have... He doesn't have an emissary like, like, like Stringer is, but he has at least a consigliere in, in Partlow to a degree.
1: But I guess because the relationship is so imbalanced that... Right. No, I get it. Yeah, but, but I, I, that's the closest thing that he's got to one is, mm-hmm. is Partlow, for sure. So my coach of the year is actually in the political wing. It's Terry Diagostino. Oh. Yes, who is Carcetti's consigliere, in many, in many respects. Although she she lets him know many times like I actually know more than you. So like Right. But the way she coached him up when you think about what he was when we first are introduced to him. Like he is smug, he's arrogant, he's not relatable and mm-hmm. she schools him on everything he needs to do and how he needs to be if he wants to be mayor and Right. Even though you know he had developed this relationship with Bunny Colvin, he'd seen Hamsterdam up close. More importantly, he saw the results and saw that it was actually working. And he didn't want to act. He didn't want to play that big Joker, but she made him play it because she's like, "Look, this is how you become mayor." And mm-hmm. he played it, got the mayoral race, came up with the plan of uh, of Tony of of kind of letting Tony feel like. You know, he not, not exposing to Tony that he was actually going to run so that he could split the black vote and then Karketty could pick up what was left. So she helped him politically raise his savviness up by an infinity amount. So to yeah. me, she was the coach of the year. Fine um, pick. Yeah. Now on to uh, sixth man of the year, Van. Who you got for this?
2: Squeaking Bernard.
1: <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. I, they, I got... they,
2: they Look, they instant offense. Instant offense. Yeah. Squeak and Bernard. Like, by the way, not an insignificant part of this season. You know, Squeak and Bernard were a big BC. Huh? They're C,
1: basically yeah. the reason why the Barksdale organization winds up crumbling,
2: pretty much. And but but every time you see Squeak and Bernard on the screen, you know that you're about to get your entertainment's money's worth. That's why, that's to me what a great six man is. A great six man is obviously somebody that can come in and give you quality minutes, score, whatever, good plus minus, all of that stuff. My favorite six man of all time is J.R. Smith with the Nuggets. And I'll tell you why. When J.R. Smith was with the Nuggets, he would come into the game. So I'm not talking about six man in terms of even like a Lamar Odom six man or a, a Crawford six man. Jamal Crawford is also another one of my favorite six men. Shout out to Jamal Crawford, a straight killer. Uh, Lou Will, all of these guys. But for just entertainment value, George Carl would put Jr. Smith in the game and J.R. Smith would just go fucking bananas, man. Jr. would be pulling up from everywhere, trying to dunk from the free throw line mid-game, windmilling. Y'all, yo, yo, JR was a freak athlete yeah, and was. a top-tier athletic specimen, right? Jr. in a different sort of set setting or like with a different sort of I guess mentality, even though I don't think there's anything wrong with the brother. You look at it, J.R. Smith had, to me, NBA all-star athletic ability. Like, he was amazing. And so, that's what they are. Soon as you come in, not only do they get it done, but instant entertainment. It was fun basketball to watch. Squeak and Bernard, J.R. Smith.
1: J.R. They are the J.R. Smith of the wire. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, my sixth man, and I go by the same criteria as you, it's like somebody... That every time they come in, it's instant offense, and that's why Slim Charles is my sixth man of the year. Oh, every, I love it. Every time, every time Slim Charles is in a scene, he dropping knowledge. He just he he may have two lines the whole scene, but you are gonna remember them two lines. You know, I, I don't know which one is m- more of my favorite line. If it's, I, I think it's this one when he said,
2: "If it's a lie, then we fight on that lie, but we gotta fight."
1: I'm like mm-hmm. yes, Slim Charles. Or when he like game the same, just got more fierce. You yep, know? Yep. Uh, Slim Charles drops only bars and that's it. Yeah, he does. You know, not to mention, I appreciate the fact that he's a goon with cornrows and beads. Yeah, that's he how does you, his thing. That's how you know.
2: The actor's name is Antoine Glover, mm-hmm. I think his name is. Did you know that Antoine Glover is a musician in real life?
1: No way. I bet she's like yeah. a jazz musician or something, something nope, soft he and gentle. Is-
2: he is the lead mic of one of the biggest go-go bands down there in DC.
1: No way. That,
2: that was trivia that was given to me. I wish I could remember who hit me up in my um in my DMs and told me that. I'm going to try to find it. If not, I will say it on a future episode. But yes, it's good trivia.
1: Yeah, because uh, I ex- totally expect somebody like him to to surprise me or or do something unexpected. When you said he was a musician. I was like, "Watch" Should be a nice quartet or something. <laughs> a nice little jazz band that he's a, yeah. that he's a part of. But yeah, Slim, Slim Child, six man of the year. All right, now on to Van, who is your most improved player?
2: My most improved player was tough. Uh, here's the reason it was tough. My knee jerk says Presbyluski, and I'll tell you why.
1: Still, huh? huh.
2: E- even still, just okay. because he's the reason. Because I feel like he's he, the re- it was season
1: one. I think he might have been...
2: Most improved or something? Well, he even improved more. He was the one that got the detail together. You know what I mean? But it's Carver.
1: That's who I have, too. It's like, it's, 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 to me, that was the hands-down choice.
2: Yeah, it's Carver. It's Carver because Carver in this, in this season is the one that shows the most maturity. You start to see towards the end, Carver starts to feel some responsibility. He starts to feel some sense of duty. And he starts to let that responsibility and that sense of duty guide him to what he has to do, which is what you want from your public servants.
1: Yeah, and and he's starting to see that the system is fucked up. I mean, he, him and her live for the, you know, for the the rip and run. I mean, they live to crack heads. Because think about one of the early, okay, I believe it might have been in episode one or episode two. When he, it was Carver who was on his King Kong Ain't Got Nothing On Me tip, when he stood on top of uh, the car and said, like, you do not get to win, shit bird. Like, he didn't even consider the people that he was supposedly policing to be human. And he made that quite clear and was very proud of that. So you go from that, from him calling them shitbirds, to suddenly he's worried about their um, well-being. That he's worried that because... You know uh, of the way things are, and because of Amsterdam and the free zone, you have young kids walking around aimlessly, homeless, nothing to do, no direction, no guidance. And it was it was such an unlikely term for somebody like him, who generally the people that he polices, he just considers them to be subhuman. Yeah, yeah, and he seems quite proud of it. And you see where him and Herc are on diverging paths. Carver is evolving, and Herc is not, and right. his respect. That he had for Bunny Colvin, and I, I think he respected the fact that that Bunny Colvin was honest with him and honest with him about the kind of officer that he he really was, and in a way that he was able to reach Carver in a way that Daniels couldn't. Couldn't, yeah, yeah. for sure. And yeah. and we we can analyze that for a bunch of reasons why, but you know, I, I, but I, I don't think one happens without the other. If he doesn't betray Daniels, I don't know that he gets to this point. But he did, and even when Daniels brought him back. Uh, he seemed to be quite ungrateful, despite the fact that Daniels had pretty much, you know, looked out for him after him and Herc, uh, impressed, went to the projects and decided to act a fool. So, right. yeah. you know, Carver is is kind of coming into his own. Uh, and this mm-hmm. is just kind of just the beginning, especially with what's ahead in season four. All right. Now on to Rookie of the Year, Van, who you got? Carcetti. Carcetti, huh?
2: Yeah, I can't really count Bunny as a rookie because he was in last season.
1: Mm, okay.
2: So unless you unless he's one of those weird Blake Griffin type of rookies. You <laughs> right. Know what I mean? the
1: ben Simmons type weird, of
2: rookie. <laughs> ben Simmons type of rookies where, you know, he kind of came out, tweaked his knee, and then he sat out a whole season and he came back. Uh, but a Karquetti. Kartdy is brand new on the scene. Um, so much of the storylines in this season revolved around what was going on with him and 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 kind of what was happening with him. And they grew a whole new portion uh a perspective of the show off of that character, centered around that character. Carcetti delivered every time. Easy one for me. Carcetti Rookie of the Year.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great choice. For me, the obvious winner was Cuddy. That's who I yeah. had as my Rookie of the Year. It, it was just a really human and compassionate story from him coming home, trying to get readjusted to life, it not being what he expected, struggling to find his place in a new society, uh, trying to dabble back in his old life and at least being smart enough to realize that that wasn't him anymore. So, right. um... I just thought that the way that they have crafted this character is really compassionate and beautiful. So he was my rookie of the year. All right, now on to Defensive Player of the Year. Who who you got, man?
2: This category was invented for one guy. Uh, Marlo. Marlo Stanfield. (laughs) Uh, Now, look, you might be asking yourself right now. Coach and
1: Defensive Player of the Year. That's
2: because you guys don't know anything about Tree Rollins and all the guys back in the day. Bill Russell. Player coaches aha, bet you guys will remember that It used to happen. used to be people who were player coaches Remember Tree Rollins was a player coach. I think for the magic or something <laughs> like that. that was the last time I can remember, but they don't really do the player coach anymore, but he is the defensive player of the year. Why? because he defended his corners
1: that's true against every against Avon uh,
2: against Avon against the. Uh, 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 the you know what I'm saying that like the one of the best offensive juggernauts in the history of the league. He defended his corner, so defensive player of the year, Marlo
1: Stan, no S, Marlo Stanfield. That is a superb choice. You know he he got the better Avon. He won the drug war. I mean he won mm-hmm. the war. Like it was saying the war. Yeah, and so um, I, he deserves that honor. My defensive player of the year is brother Muzon. <laughs> brother Muzon. That is. You know, uh, he, um, from the very first mo- moment that Brother Muzon popped on the scene, he has been about nothing but, you know, hand-checking you, getting on your chest. That is, is an aggressive yeah. style of defense, uh, for sure. And, you know, for him to recover from getting shot the way that he has Stringer Bell terrified. Yeah. Rolled up on Avon in the barbershop.
0: Your
3: man told Omar Little that I was responsible for the torture of a young boy who was close to Mr.
2: Little's heart. Your man, in effect, sought to have me hit. Omar told you that and you believe that, motherfucker? He doesn't strike me as a man who would tell
3: stories, even at the point of dying. If he made a mistake here, then I'm willing to pay the cost. You want money?
2: Money? Yeah. This is business. Business is where you are now.
1: Just showed no fear about checking him. And he was like, look, it's going to be one of two ways, right? Like, our business part is done. Basically, right. give up your man. That pretty much right. is it. He didn't have any choice in give, give up your man or you out of here, baby. Yeah. Like, like, he basically threatened him. You know what I mean? And then it'd be a selfless teammate to partner with Omar you know, giving us many great scenes, particularly, obviously, the the, the the showdown at the OK Corral that they, yep. <laughs> they gave mm-hmm. us when they first linked up. Um, you, you know, not only would I love to have seen a Bernard and Squeak um, spinoff, but definitely a Brother Muzon and Omar.
2: I want to see more about Brother Muzon, man. I yep. want, And by the way, I pitched it on Bill's Bill's podcast. That's why I can't wait for HBO to pick up and make my movie called Avon's Home. The Return of the King, Whoa. a wire movie. We it's need like it. A- about Avon Barksdale getting out of jail. It's either Avon Barks- Avon's Home, Requiem for a King, or Avon's Home, The Return of the King. It's, it's one of those two. And it's about Avon coming back. Bill, Bill and them want to make it. Bill and Bacardi sell this. Shout out to both of them. They want to make it about Avon reestablishing his drug empire. I don't want to do that movie. Someone on Twitter said that's more of a stars movie than the HBO movie. movie I want to do is Avon coming back to terms with life, having been in for so long, getting out of jail. And this is what we could see guys like Brother Muzon. Maybe Brother Muzon now, maybe he's he's leading a mosque now. Maybe Brother Muzon, he's not in the game no more. You know, maybe he's leading a mosque. Maybe he, maybe, maybe Avon is trying to, you know, turn his life religious and he goes into a mosque somewhere and brother Muzon is in there. Who knows? Even though he's from New York, maybe we moved to Boston. Who knows? Whatever. You could do it. I think you should do it. If you could do the Breaking Bad movie with Jesse, fucking going to Alaska or whatever, you could do the the Wire movie by Avon coming home. Do the movie.
1: <laughs> well, I have to say, man, you just presented a very like compassionate, you know, kind of modern day take on what Avon should be. But mm-hmm. the Ratchet TV viewer in me wants to see him reestablish his empire as a drug keeper <laughs> so he can what? go back
2: because of I like, don't understand this I, I know like, I, it's not like it, it's not that's not the wire that's not like that's I not know. what it is they would never like do Avon, it that way it's like, it's like Avon as Cuddy almost is right. the movie you know that's what you want to see him Him sleeping on Brianna's couch and all of that stuff like that you want to see that damn it man y'all want power y'all did- want Avon <laughs>
1: did- y'all want we do basically. It's like, no, I'd rather come back out and be like, can I just, uh, can I run it back? Can I, can I, can I rebuild some towers and take them over? <laughs> like, right. Now, <laughs> you know, so I kind of want to see him in that world. Or you know what? How about we split the difference? And it's Avon trying to live a more legitimate life, but then the forces of his former drug empire keep pulling yeah. him back.
2: Yeah, you know, people, people know Avon home. They think it's time to get gully. Yeah. and you know Marlo don't have it no more it's a new kingpin they want Avon to do this but this all of these things are pulling up man make this movie HBO it's, it's easy man All right, you know
1: what I'm saying make the movie I'm sure David Simon is somewhere thinking if I'm dead in the grave <laughs> like he, I, don't think, I don't think he would ever <laughs> consider doing a wire movie or any more we'll to see. do with the wire we'll
2: but see. you know
1: when the zeros start coming you never know mm-hmm. executive
2: uh-huh. producer story by Van Lee
1: put it in the atmosphere Van it's gonna happen uh, now that leads to our final category, the one you've all been waiting for, MVP. Man, who is your MVP for season three? Stringer Bell. Oh, you that's just terrible. I protest. Sh-
2: like Stringer
1: Bell is the MVP.
2: A dead MVP? No, a, a, a dead <laughs> MVP. Stringer Bell is the MVP. Could have picked so many other people. Could have picked Bunny.
1: Yeah, could have picked Could have picked
2: all. Stringer Bell is the MVP. Stringer Bell. We talked about the acting job. We gave that to Robert Wisdom, but I'm gonna reward the character of Stringer Bell right now for the dimensions that he had to navigate in this entire season. Did he navigate them successfully in the end? No, but every almost every scene with Stringer was a very high leverage scene. Every single time he was on screen, the stake was so high. He was trying to reconcile a relationship with his best friend, also reconcile a relationship with business partners who were keeping him rich, also try to reconcile the things that he had done in the past that were coming back to bite him. The character had a lot on his plate and he ate it every single show.
1: All of those self-inflicted wounds. (laughs) Hands
2: down, Stringer Bell, MVP, season three of The Wire, Russell Bell,
1: rest in peace. This is worse than when Carl Malone got the MVP instead of Michael Jordan.
2: <laughs> this is like
1: when Shaq and Kobe both got frozen out of MVPs. It's like oh, that. Yeah. Is like that
2: by the new coach, the the, the coaching wizardry of Steve Nash. Like, like, hey man, KD and them wanted them, but god damn,
1: <laughs> I know. <right? laughs> like, oh, I mean,
2: bro, that 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 was that took some nuts, boy. I tell you what, NBA wrote Black Lives Matter on the court. Never mind, I might be gonna start. <laughs>
1: let's take it off I'm on a tangent gonna start. I'm uh, gonna start. Yeah. I know the pick and trigger, that's like when that time people forget when Magic Johnson was like the coach of the Lakers for like 20 games
2: <laughs> at the end of the year nobody ever talks about that nobody they should do a 30 ta- for 30 on that seriously they should do a 30 for 30 on that like, nobody talks about that when he was the coach, was the coach of the he was Lakers like, you know what
1: <laughs> I'm good <laughs> only for years later to be like you know what about being this whole team president thing or executive I wanna nah. I, cause I wanna tweet
2: I wanna be able to tweet.
1: Imagine <laughs> so like, I can't I'm be the, the
2: president of the team. I wanna be able That's to tweet. Right. Okay.
1: Shameful pig Van Lathan. Shameful. You know, it was too easy for me to say that when Stringer got blasted, that was my my favorite scene of season three. <laughs> Just too easy. Mm-hmm. They didn't torture right. him enough. Mm-hmm. Wish they would have. Crazy. Hating on uh, But my MVP, it's a name that you've heard repeatedly as we've gone through these awards, is Bunny Coven. That is mm-hmm. yeah. the MVP. He was my Good MVP, choice. best boss. Uh, also the best performance of this season. I mean, Robert Wisdom in many ways makes this season uh because of what he's trying to do on the police side of things. And as good, the crazy thing is, as good as he was in season three, it's even four, he's even better <laughs> than mm-hmm. he was than he was in season three. Uh always hitting the, you know, he was the conscience of the police department. He was in many ways the conscience of this show. And what he was trying to do, trying to revolutionize something that did not want to be revolutionized. It, it was just a, a remarkable story arc for him. He, uh you know, Greta, he he may have left with a, a lower rank and mm-hmm. uh, a bit, you know, having to take one on the chin, but ultimately, uh, there is not a single decision that Bunny Colvin made in season three that wasn't based off his integrity. And that's what made right. his his character special. He never did anything selfish in True. this season at all. True. So it's... True. uh. That's a very admirable trait, and for that, Bunny Coven, you are the MVP. You win not a Kia, you win absolutely nothing, but our nothing, undying nothing. Mean respect. Nothing. Meanwhile, uh, Van has made sure to tarnish the MVP by the choosing of Stringer Bell. But
2: I think we'll you should call that. the Stringer Bell MVP award.
1: <laughs> Why? Because so it can be poorly managed. <laughs> yeah, whatever. So it could be, uh, you know, so it could go to the farmers market too. Right. <laughs> they never get it
2: right anyway. The guy who wins the MVP never wins the championship anymore. It rarely yeah. happens. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but that, that would fit Stringer because he didn't win the championship because he got that bullet. That's why. <laughs> got that lead. How about that? The MVP should be Clay Davis. Is that the same? Because he did uh, everybody a great <laughs> service by yeah. getting this man off the streets. Clay Davis was <laughs> up there for
2: six man. He was in there when I, when I had the little... Yeah. He, he was up he there for six
1: man. No, he could have. Yeah. That's definitely somebody who's instant off, offense. He is... He is built along the veins of a J.R. Smith. Although he's not a J.R. Smith type. Mm-mm.
2: He's not a J.R. Smith. Smith type.
1: No, no. Mm-mm. It's, a, in some ways, a he's more. My favorite six man different. was Vinny Johnson, obviously being from Detroit.
2: Yeah, microwave. Yeah, Microwave, Vinny yeah. Johnson. Yeah, Clay Davis is more of a Dennis Schroeder. Mm. I mean? Dennis Schroeder, you know, he's like, a, he's got all the tools. You wonder, why doesn't he start? Yeah. But, like, he can score. The score, and he's fun to watch, but. I don't know. There's something off with me about Sh- in Schroeder. I don't know. Something, I don't know. He's like, what was the guy from Detroit back in the day?
1: Flip Murray? You, Flip Murray. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I never liked him. But he was good. He was never good. Never liked him. <laughs> yeah. Never liked him. Just one your... So, mm-hmm. my cup of tea. Never liked him. Never liked Flip Murray. The, this is the kind of analysis that we expect from the Van. <laughs> 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 Always pinpoint as usual. Uh, anyway, right. ladies and gents, that, that is going to wrap it up for season three we will be joining you soon as we begin season four, which is my favorite season. Can't wait to start mm-hmm. that. Um, one of the most heartbreaking seasons in The Wire. It's I, I got to emotionally prepare myself to rewatch season four because it does right. take a lot out of you. The kids. You, there are many moments where you feel like we, we just ain't gonna make it as a humanity. We just. Like, why am I looking at this? Right. But it's, it's great. But it's great. It's though. great. Wonderfully kids, acted. Man great talented children in this one so I can't wait to dive into that but anyway that's going to do it for us until next time people keep listening to us and keep watching The Wire we'll see y'all soon